Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the August 30, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Today's guests are California State Fullerton philosophy professor Jilu Liu, accompanied by Master Jimmy Liu, who will offer a vigorous testimonial of how mastery of Tai Chi ended Jilu's severe back pain without surgery. Then, UCI senior lecturer Ken Chu will talk about his research entitled, America's Smartest Neighborhood? Question mark. A demographer explores University Hills, the nation's largest on-campus faculty housing complex. We'll be right back after a short station break. Thanks for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. My first guests are Professor Ji Lu and Tai Chi Master Jimmy Lu with Ji Lu's breakthrough health story. Ji Lu is currently working on constructing analytic Chinese philosophy in topics such as Chinese metaphysics, Confucian moral psychology, and Neo-Confucian virtue ethics. She completed her BA and MA in philosophy at National Taiwan University and her PhD, the University of Rochester. Today, we pivot away from her scholarly work, but not her sense of discipline to examine how she has managed to serve her health, that is, averting back surgery through adopting and embracing the practice of Tai Chi and other exercise. Joining her is Master Jimmy Lu, who was born in Taipei, Taiwan. With over 20 years of martial arts experience, Master Lu built up his Tai Chi Kung Fu abilities through rigorous training from Grandmaster Wang and Grandmaster Li. With a well-established foundation of sung, sink, and root, he soon started studying other forms of martial arts, varying from Qigong, Shaolin, and Pagua, and to, uh, to crane boxing. My apologies with my diphthongs being way out of whack here at Kung Fu, and began to, to integrate those concepts together. So to advance his understanding of healing, Master Lu attended Oriental Medical Graduate School and earned a master's degree in Oriental Medicine. After years of researching, he came up with the new concept of healing chronic problems through exercising and Tai Chi called Wu Ji Dao. I'm going to, he'll straighten out my diphthongs, I know, momentarily. To bring this practice to a larger public, Master Lu established his Jin Bei Holistic Association, promoting his new method of completely natural healing. He currently teaches at 11 locations throughout Southern California. There, He may have added one since we last uh, dropped this bio here. We'll find out. Today, we'll cover the benefits of Tai Chi style exercise as well as exercise in general. Both Jilu Liu and Master Liu join me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you. We, now you can tell by the voices there's definitely a female and a male voice, so we know who's who, Ji Lu and and uh, Master Lu. So, uh, Ji Lu, let's let's start with the kind of symptoms that you experienced, and uh, as comprehensively as uh, we can, uh, all have listeners relate sure. to what happened with you sure. tw back in before 2010. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm willing to share my very private personal experience because I want to give uh, those who are those of you who are still suffering out there some hope that uh, there is a, uh, a, f a cure okay, without surgery. Um, I always had a chronic uh, sciatica and back pain since I was you know, 30. Uh, but then in 2008, I started feeling numbness in my leg and a tingling sensation. So I went to my family doctor and described the situation. She said, uh, I said I wasn't really in pain, just a numbness. She said numbness is actually much worse than pain. So she immediately referred me to a spine uh, doctor in uh, Newport Beach. And this doctor took x-ray on me, and then in five minutes talking to me, he said, you need spine f surgery. 
I was shocked because I have been very active. I practice yoga three, four times a week. I do. Uh, I go to 24-hour fitness uh, every other day, and I consider myself very fit. And I, I didn't think that this small thing, that numbness, could actually call for surgery. So I said, "Wouldn't exercise help?" And he said, "No, because this is a structural issue." He said, "You do. If you don't believe me, you can go get some more MRI." So I took some more MRI at UCI, and the result was that I have a spondylolisthesis, and that is uh, uh, unstable spine, uh, my vertebrae moves, um, and then I also have a moderate to severe spinal stenosis, and I also have a disc protrusion. And so th- I think the common treatment for, th- uh, for just the disc protrusion is uh, something called the decompression. But because I also have the combination of spondylolisthesis, if they do any decompression, it will make the spine more unstable. So th- if I go through surgery, the only uh, procedure that doctors will recommend is um, spinal fusion. Okay. Um, Which has, there's complications with surgery, yes. in, in surgery, and then there is the range of motion you lose with the fused discs. Yes, so I, so I, I knew about this uh, outcome, and I didn't want to go with that route. And also at the time, it wasn't that s- serious an issue to m- for me. I can still function. So I didn't do anything about it. But then in spring 2009, I was assigned four courses, uh, uh, and also I had to uh, organize a, a really large uh, two-day symposium. So that semester was really stressful for me, and I was sitting in front of the computer all the time, and I was always working and, 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 and fretting about all the details I need to do. And uh, my back became much worse. Uh, I was constantly feeling the numbness, and I was having unstable spine. Um, I, when I, oftentimes uh, when I went from sitting to, to walk to standing, especially when getting out of the car, I would have this sharp pain shooting down my spine and my legs, and I would freeze for a few seconds until it goes away, then I can walk again. And I was pretty scared of walking, and I, I wore uh, a very uh, specially designed uh, knee brace, I mean a uh, back brace right. all the time. But one morning, I was going to uh, a yoga practice. I was still doing my exercise, uh, thinking that would help. And I just got out of the car, and then suddenly this sensation came came to me, and I waited. It wouldn't go away. I just complete. I was p- completely paralyzed. So I leaned on the car. There was no one. It was too early. No one was around. So I leaned on the car and crawled myself back to uh, to the seat, and I drove myself back. And I honked and I told my husband, "You had to help me get into the house." So he brought a, a, a chair with wheel and wheeled me back to the house and called the ambulance right away. And that time I realized that my back is actually very, very serious. I need to do something about it. So since then, I started being actively pursuing. And initially, I, I went for the traditional routes. I, I went to the pain management. I, I went to the uh, orthopedics, and I went to the neurosurgeon. They all told me that, well, with your, with your severe uh, spinal stenosis, you have to have surgery. They said the side effect, if you don't have surgery, is that you will get um, you will lose the, the control of your lower limbs, and you have foot drop, and... And so surgery is the only option. And so I, th- I was pretty scared. And in the, the following semester, I was on sabbatical. So I took that whole semester looking for all kinds of treatment. Someone told me there's a Chinese uh, bone mani- manipulation doctor in Almonte. I would go to see the doctor on a weekly basis. Someone told me there's someone, there's a Chinese doctor doing acupuncture in, in Westminster. I would go there. Someone told me there's a rolfing uh, technique, uh, um, muscle manipulation, and I would pay $150 for an hour, and I would, I would sign up for, for 10 times. I, I, and I did, of course, I did also did uh, herbal medicine. I did uh, acupuncture. I did massage therapy the chiropractic and for the whole semester I spent all those time looking for all kinds of treatment but my condition got worse um, I was still feeling that kind of a sharp pain and, and uh, when I walk after 10-15 minutes I would start feeling numb I have to sit down and rest and sometimes I would have to, uh, my husband or my kids pull my hands away so when I'm sitting so I can feel my, my spine is being uh, extended it was just oh, wow. I just felt I, I couldn't continue like that but the situation got worse at the end of that year. It was the end of uh, 2009. Uh, suddenly, the pain became a different nature. It was like a, a burning sensation uh, on the sacrum area. So I talked to my doctor. He t- 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 she ordered some more MRI. It showed that I have two large uh, Tarlov cysts. I don't know if anyone knows what about that. What kind of cysts? It's uh, named after Dr. Tarlov, T-A-R-Tarlov, uh, okay. L-O-V. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's a cyst that sits on the, the a nerve benign root. cyst? 
Yes, yep. but it's a cis-assist on the nerve root. Yeah. And oh. I think that many people actually have it, but they didn't know about it. So most uh, tolopsis are uh, asymptomatic, but when it gets symptomatic, it probably will be like what I, what I felt. So for about two months, I could not sit because it just hurt so much. And, I, and, and at the time, I was thinking, now I really understand why in English there's an expression, pain the butt. Oh. That's, that's <laughs> oh, <no>. real pain. <laughs> That's really excruciating. You can't make light pain. of this. This is, I'm counting at least f- about five afflictions. So you're really capturing a a large public that uh, that could probably benefit from some of this. So and the other thing is that there's a, well, there's two things and additional things is that there is an interactive effect. I'm sure that was confounding any one of those conditions. And then I I just want to sort of my own little testimonial in studio with you is you don't have that set grimace on your face that it as one indication that you've overcome this, this kind of thing so this is now you should have seen me then at that time i really felt i was disabled for life i thought maybe i couldn't continue teaching maybe i have to go for early retirement i thought there's no quality in my life i could not and, uh, and it's really hard for me to lie down at night because if i had to turn and it's just excruciating pain so then uh, we, we actually invested in uh, some kind of a special chair called Zero Gravity. So I can uh-huh. actually lift myself up when I'm in the middle of the night. And uh, the, the most comfortable position for me was actually just standing. And any, anything, any change of position, it was, just, it was just that kind of pain that you could not describe. And so I look up online and I found some uh, Tarloff sister uh, uh, support group. So I joined them. And I described my symptoms, and everybody was very sympathetic, and they all said they have exactly the same thing, that my Tylenol must, must have gone symptomatic. Yes. And, and, so I, and they gave me a suggestion where I should go for treatment. And I, f- I found out that there is a hospital in Kansas that I specialize that. I thought about going there, and just to, but the, the thing is that the whole procedure, the whole surgery and recovery takes six months. I don't know who could take care of me if I'm away. And then uh, I also found that there is a, a hospital in Baltimore, and my, my brother lives in D.C., so I also contemplate going there. And someone else told me that there's actually someone in California, so it was a doctor in Northern California. So I emailed this doctor, and he was very nice. He emailed me back right away. Okay. He said, you actually have some doctors near you, UCLA. So I went to three, and I, I also found uh, um, their, their medical case studies written by three authors at UCLA and uh, at Cedar Sinai. So I went to three, see all three of them to talk about my Tarloff-Sid situation, and and one of them showed me the operation picture that he he, he took, and he said that uh, this is really really a very serious, very dangerous surgery. He said he had one patient who after the surgery lost all control of bowel movement. And so he said, unless you really have to do it, don't do it. And the other two doctors at, at uh, UCLA and, and the Cedar sinai said, um, most uh, Talov says are actually asymptomatic. Right, your you pain, mm-hmm. Yeah, m- your pain must not be associated with Talov says, must be just oh, your original that. problem. So, so then they said, I would not recommend surgery on the Talov cyst, but if you want to go for sinus spine fusion, then you assess your decision. So this is at this point when I felt I was I had no hope. No, I mean, I have s- other people driving me, but every time the car goes through a bump, I will be s- t- no tightening up and scre- you no know, screaming because it was just so painful, and it's just like there is nothing that I can do uh, other other than just standing still. Okay, and then this I, this is at the time when I I told a friend that I'm, I'm I, I also actually begged the doctor to can you perform surgery on me now. So I was scheduled to have surgery th- that summer. And so I told a friend that I'm going to have a surgery in the summer. Okay, enter that friend. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Here's the pivot, folks. Mm-hmm. And so this friend knew about Master Lu's, Jin, uh, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing, Jinpei mm-hmm. Association yes. Yes. there. So uh, that was a remarkable step that that was like you were so close to having surgery. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm on some kind of reality, ridiculous talk show. And <laughs> this is, I, never, I never go there, folks. So this was a pivotal moment for you to get so um and we'll give master uh, some chances to talk about sure, the practice yeah, but sure. first though i just would like for you to give us jilu and uh, a little br- quick brush of your first introduction mm. to the studio there mm. and you know what happened and the immediacy of some of these this is just like voodoo here i'm keeping <laughs> 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 okay so what uh, so talk about that very first appointment there 
Okay. Or the um, class session, of what we call yeah, it. Yeah, that was the end of uh, January in 2010. It was in Villa Park, and they have a class, a Tai Chi class at the Villa Park High School. And I drove myself there for about half an hour. And after I... You drove yourself? Yes. You could do that. Because I was really early in the morning. I didn't want to bother other people. And my husband has to take care of the kids. Well, but you were bothering your back again just to sit in the <laughs> yeah. car for so that. So that's, this is the mistake. So after Uh-oh. I got out of the car, I could not straighten up. I was... I was like a 90-year-old, you know. And so someone saw me like this and said, do you need help? They said, yeah, I'm here. I was really whispering. I said, I'm here to look for a Tai Chi class. So this woman said, uh, it's the other side. You parked on the wrong side. Oh, no. And so I walked, and I was I was worried that I might be too late. And, uh, and then on the way there, I stumbled, and I fell to the ground. And the thing is that with my back condition, I could not brace myself at all. So I was on my hands and knees, and I was staying like that. I could not, I didn't know what to do. I could not get up. And then there were some passerbys, and four of them saw me and said, should I call an ambulance? I said, no, I'm here to see a Tai Chi teacher. Can you just help me get there? So four of them just picked me up, and then to kind of carry me over there to the, to the class. And that's what happened when many of the, the, tai, uh, the students saw me at the first day, that I was really a basket case. Your baseline <laughs> was like in the basement there yeah. in terms <laughs> of condition. So, Master, maybe you yeah. could talk about what sort, you, you identified how she presented. You probably, you didn't have like a medical chart and you could look at her medical history, but maybe there's something you could uh, assess easily and you could start leading her through some very very basic kinds of motions was it amounted to uh, okay the, f- the first few I saw her and I know is uh, is a lower back lower back problem because she cannot walk so um, the, f- the first imaging I, I, I just try to make her lower back relax loose so that's why I just uh, have her sit down and uh, shake the butt like okay a, that's yeah. all it was yes okay yeah Oh, I want to remind anybody who's just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader at KUCI, 88.9 FM Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. My guests are Professor Ji Lu Lu and Tai Chi Master Jimmy Lu with various testimonials about alternatives toward managing pain, that is acute and chronic pain. And we're now right where Master Lu is receiving Ji Lu, who is just, she's down to nothing but a primordial pile of of neurons that aren't firing properly <laughs> at all. So anyway, you're shaking her tush to get her lower back to relax. That's yes. all. So there are other things fundamentally that you were able to do right there at that first appointment meeting. I think the the first day I, I told him that I'm scheduled to have surgery in, in the summer, but I'm, I want to see what you can what you can offer. He said, and he said, you know, in a very definitive way, there are two paths, okay? One is that you stay with me and you try my method. The other one, you go for surgery. So if you are go- going to go for surgery, then you should not should not bother staying with me. So I think... Well, there's a, a consumer conundrum. <laughs> yeah. I think that a lot of people ask me, why did you stay? Why did you keep coming back? And I think it was that that kind of a confidence was very reassuring. I have gone through all kinds of treatment. I have taken Tai Chi before too, you know. Oh, you had been? Yes, oh, yes. Okay. So I have been doing all kinds of things and nobody could give me that kind of a reassurance. They just said, we'll wait and see. And so I want to see, okay, I'll wait and see, but I want to try it out first. And also, um, after the method that he taught me, I was, I was doing that for about 40 minutes and I could straighten up my back and I could drive home. And I thought, that's a really good sign. So I kept going back. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think that from 2008 to uh, 2010, I can read my MRI result. My disc pro- pro- protrusion actually uh, doubled in size. And my spinal stenosis went from moderate to severe to severe. And so from the MRI scanned, uh, there were two spots. The doctors could not see any nerve that was so, you know, so compressed. Yes. Yeah. So uh, that's... I felt that I was really going down, but uh, and now I look at look back at my uh, email communication at the end of February. So after one month later, in my communication with my sister in Taiwan, I said I am feeling mo- no, remarkably better than last month, and so I felt that I was coming out of the bottom of the pit. Right, and now and as you say, that there's today 2016. We race to there's no structural difference but that 
it's what's I guess happening around. It's the tissue that's happening around the the degenerated neural tissues that you're talking about. So let's have Master Lou talk about. Is this typical? I mean, you, I guess you you present a confidence because you've seen something like this before. So uh, how do people come to you in, over these twenty years? And is it, and you're able to sort of assess them and give get them started with some very simple things like you did with Jilu. Yeah, actually, like a Jilu case is not a is not a typical because it's the not. most yeah okay. it's not because it's too, the most it's too people, complicated. Yeah, it is. So it's because the most people like a, a huge situation, they most people they go operation. Yeah, so early they don't catch uh, you in time. Yeah, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not typical. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I, I tell people, try other things. The thing is that I, I am strongly against us, not especially spinal fusion, is that once you, this is what I studied and what I learned, right? Once you have fused uh, a segment, it, the, the uh, conjoining uh, uh, vertebrae takes uh, the, the pressure. So <coughs> very likely, three years down the road, you need another fusion. So that's, that's really scary. It's like once you start this route, do more surgery and more surgery is the only option so and you keep losing more range of motion yes every exactly fusion you do yes. with each disc there well i'd like to know master lu do you collaborate with other practitioners what kind of involvement is there no not this moment it's all it's all inside the studio and we'll give and jing Jin Pei. Pei, yeah Jin Pei holistic yeah and how do people get a hold uh, find out more about this because I noticed the website's not really up to date right now. Right. <laughs> so no, no, not a slam anything, but uh, but I want to make sure everybody have they have all the resources they need to yes. pursue. Yeah, actually, all the students come; they all buy referral. So yeah, yeah. they are. Yeah. Miles, so yeah. that is the collaboration with practitioners. Right, right. They they come to you. I see. No well, patients uh, refer other patients. Oh, it's oh, yeah. word of mouth. Mm. Yeah, by the mouth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And are uh, the. The demographics are. I noticed with some of the older website photos, there's. It's a more mature following. But are you, sort of pulling in a lot of different ages at this point, to intervene in what their early degeneration is at an earlier age? No, I think most studio? of our like most of our uh, students are between fifty and seventy. Okay, and seventy and above. But yeah. I bet you'd like to get your hands on the younger clientele before things get so out of whack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that's uh, we we tried. Maybe we could do that PSA sometime to say it's ne- better earlier than later for yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think Master Liu often told us that Tai Chi is better for more ad- mature adults because we have the kind of um, mental state to be calm. And young people, they want things that are moving fast, yeah. you know, and they want they want they want heat. They want you know, fast-paced movement. And so it's hard for them to actually get into Tai Chi and then develop that kind of, you know, mental state. Okay. So it's not a matter of early introduction of it to help settle that sort of frenetic adolescent or young adult mindset, but it just, it's attuned later on. Yeah, for the young people, just give them some idea. Then maybe in the future... When they need it, they know what they want. Then they can come. Yeah. Because I, we, um, I've been at a mindfulness training uh-huh. at, at this through the Samueli Center, and mm-hmm. they talk mindfulness stress reduction, and a, a lot of parents with young children saw that what they were learn that the parents were learning in that session could easily translate to younger, yes. slower moving or faster moving targets. But uh, at, and I was wondering if the pediatric exercise research center at the Perk at at UCI also would be benefiting from this, but you're really you're about mentioning endorsing this for an older yes. an older system. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. Could I say something about absolutely? Uh, yeah. I I want to get my message out there about uh, the kind of a pain management treatment that we've been getting because I did go through all these pain management uh, treatment. I had four epidural shots and they did nothing for me, and I was on naproxen four times a day and the gabapentin, and so. The doctors told me that it's inflammation, so you need to have it even when, even when you're not in pain. But you do it, you eat, you take the with, with medicine with a, with meals. So I did that, but then uh, a year later, I developed ulcer. From okay. the, oh yes. yes, and the doctor who performed the, you know, the the scope on me told me you should stop taking any kind of a pain medicine. And I said, uh, but I'm in pain. And he said, well, I have never seen anyone dying from 
back pain, but I have seen plenty of patients dying from also internal bleeding. Well, I, the other complication that comes to mind is on everybody's lips is the opiate epidemic. And were more people able to seek out a resource like the Tai Chi practice, they would not get involved in that opiate introduction and their pain management and the mm -hmm. epidemic would would begin to wind down so it's sort of like a huge public health crisis mm -hmm. that that tai chi could address on the most fundamental level is that is that coming into your sphere as, as a way of sort of a, a larger public health contribution tai chi could make yeah but this is the this is the main problem for tai chi needs time yeah you can get the result right away so you need to spend your time maybe like a, a couple months even a couple years you know, to gain the result. Yeah, so but for the most people, they come in and say, hey, how long you can have this kind of problem? Then, then how, uh, how long I can, I can solve the problem? I say three months. But even I say three months, they're long. They, they don't have a patient. But you offered relief, though, so Jilu could drive her car home the very first visit she made, though. So I would yeah. think there are immediate kinds of benefits. Uh, and sort of it's like they all kind of stack up. You get more and more benefits with your practice. Right. Uh, but the thing is... I think the, the, the thing is that me, because I was so intent on getting better, so my body That's holds the you tension. Are but the body holds the tension all the time. Our mutual yeah. friend so he, is talking about that. Yeah, that he's uh, teaching me yeah, how to so relax. Serious, She's so the most... And that's what I was wanting to ask is <laughs> yeah. how much of a role does your inestimable discipline play here, Jilu, in your recovery? I am very, very disciplined. I mean, you are like yes. mm -hmm. ahead of the, the class there. You, I mean, you raced through all these Tai Chi kinds of yeah. steps of, uh, I Step don't know, it's up. not a belt, but what what is this? What are the steps? No, we don't, we don't really do that kind of, a, uh, you know, <laughs> the testing, the adjustment. String. Yes. <laughs> but just think about this. With my case back in 2010, by 20, 2012, I started teaching my own class. I teach the kind of exercise that he taught me yes and uh, do a lot of stretching so i've been teaching for four years and now i do some kind of martial art kind of a bagua move bagua. Okay. yeah so I, I just want to let people know that there is hope and our body has the self-healing ability but you need <coughs> you need to know where you're holding your tension you need to relax because that tension is what kills you okay and uh one year after I I was recovered, you know, uh, I went back to those uh, support group of Talof Cyst, and I told them that oh. don't go for surgery. I said, you know, um, most uh, uh, Talof Cyst, according to the doctors I saw, are asymptomatic, so don't do anything that could possibly ru ruin your whole life. And I got really negative feedback. They said, oh, your pain must not be really serious. In, in my condition, yeah, it's, it's a leap of faith for the Western yeah, mind. Yeah. yeah, so I think you need that leap of faith trust your own body well i go back to when i with the early appointments i had with my chinese western trained acupuncturist that you know she used to laugh and say when she first arrived i will say 25 some years ago the patients never told their primary docs that they were getting acupuncture treatment she said well you know and we've mm. we've made progress because now the doctors are getting acupuncture too mm -hmm. so i guess tai chi learning curves have to be the same way as the acupuncture learning curve with conventional medicine practitioners exactly yeah and sometimes the uh, students uh, came you know, new newcomers came and said uh, i heard tai chi is good for us uh, are yeah. you teaching tai chi but the thing is that and then they look at us but you're not doing the tai chi moves <laughs> i think that Tai Chi, uh, you know, calling it a, a particular movement, uh, uh, exercise is mis misleading. Yes. Because it's the idea that counts. The idea is you have to have the body awareness. Yeah. And you have to know how to breathe. You have to know how to relax, how to let go of your, 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 your tension. And that's the thing that we thought, that's why our club in English is called Tai Chi Plus. Okay. Yeah, so there's a combination of things. Excellent. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Tai Chi Master Jimmy Liu and Professor at uh, Cal State Fullerton and devotee and testimonial offer, Professor Ji Lu Liu here on Ask a Leader. And uh, now, so I don't think you had a chance, Master Liu, to give us exactly where people could get more information to follow up because we're bringing them right to the edge of there's hope, there's help on the way. So how do they follow up? How? Oh. Uh, we have uh, a pretty good uh, Chinese site. 
Okay. okay. The, yeah, with the English yeah. side, it just oh, hasn't no, been uh, updated. Oh, no, that isn't fair. <laughs> I mean, all of us have such rusty Mandarin. So, so there's, okay, well, I'm here to say it's mm. important that you post this all yes. in your newest webmaster best the, uh, in English. So, because uh, that's the purpose of uh, people want to know how right, to follow yeah, it probably up. Probably the very near future, we're going to be improve our website with the uh, English. Okay, yeah. well, we're ahead of all that. And yeah. I didn't realize that. So, yeah. well, um, so... Tell us, at this point, um, now we've talked about that discipline. It's, it, it's very much a, a part of your success, Dr. D. Lu. Um, I, and I wanted to mention there's, there are alternative sorts of training pipelines. The Samueli Integrated Medicine Center is not just practicing alternative medicine, but they're also training practitioners. So I think they've had their... They've had a full, several couple of cohorts who've come all the way through their program and are practicing now. So I don't know if your plans are in the future, Master Liu, to collaborate with some of these medical alternative training and practicing centers around the Orange County, L.A. Basin areas. Okay. So what do you think about yeah, are, are, are you considering that, or so can I? Yeah, we, we, can I get we, we you think to think about that, right? We can. We can. Yeah, yeah I guess Dr. So, Shin, yeah, it didn't Lin, occur to us. Uh, yeah. to <laughs> but that's that's where you can really make an additional impact and get your word out uh, for sure, because mm-hmm. they are receptive and they're 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 waiting to hear from you. I would think it's wonderful to get a chance to talk with both of you about this. I want to thank Master Liu and Professor Ji Lu Liu for talking today about the benefits of Tai Chi and related practices. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming to the studio today. Thank you. We'll be right back with Master and Senior Lecturer, Demographer Ken Chu. He's going to talk about the uh, faculty ghetto up the hill. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. In the beginning, well, later on in the continuing development of the UC system, a residential compound of sorts was developed for UC Irvine employees. 1,426 units later, housing some 4,000 residents. My next guest, Ken Chu, demographer, explores the past, present, and future of this unusual neighborhood, University Hills, right up the slope from the station. He is senior lecturer at the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at UCI School of Social Ecology. His teaching interests include population studies, city life, and urban planning, environment and society, demography, and numeric data. His research interests include social and historical demography, Chinese on the Western Frontier, Demographic Foundations of Public Health, and Suicide, Homicide, and Child Abuse Prevention. Wow, that's a lot of measuring, a lot of demographics. Since 2008, he served on the board of the Irvine Campus Housing Authority, and commonly referred to as AISHA, a self-supporting nonprofit corporation that plans, develops, and manages University Hills on an on-campus community of more than 1,000 faculty staff households. Ken Chu completed his BA in sociology at Cornell, his master's of arts degrees in sociology and demography, as well as his PhD in sociology at UC Berkeley. All of this body of work and his residing there for 31 years more than qualifies him to lift the lid for a close examination of nearby neighborhood entitled this presentation, America's Smartest Neighborhood, question mark, a demographer explores University Hills, the nation's largest on-campus faculty housing complex. Ken Chu joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ken. Good morning, KUCI listeners. Good morning. I always have a chuckle at the adage. I don't know if you've already heard of it. It's a tired one, but I think it's funny that the University Hills is a gated community without the gate. No, I haven't heard that one before. Because I think so many people feel like it's it's sort of it's on a sort of a cul-de-sac in town. It's a it's a loop. There's no through streets to uh, out of the, the 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 neighborhood. So that effectively sort of insulates it the way a gate might insulate other communities. But there is no gate. And I know 
so many residents or, or so many campus constituents folks in dorms and all that they have no idea that that's up there well you know claudia we kind of think our ourselves as a lot like the rest of Irvine. In, in fact, it surprises a lot of our residents to learn that we, we have made it a policy of deliberately emulating uh, the outside community. We try not to differentiate ourselves from the rest of, of our surrounding area. We actually try not to be different. We try to uh, uh, aspire to the same standards of, of housing, amenities, and community life that we can see around us. So um, although we're geographically isolated, we try to think of ourselves as, as living like everybody else. Well, that's an important point. I wasn't sure how I was going to bring this up later on, but it's, a, it's right now needed to, uh, to be dropped that I think because of the below market price sales price for all of these units it avails the university paid employees a higher standard of living they wouldn't have otherwise without that uh, that affordable housing that w- that's it is affordable housing stock that allows that them to move about uh, an affluent population with a, a comparably uh, high standard of living because it, of the lower housing costs. I think that's absolutely true. The whole genesis of University Hills was as an amenity that would be a strong argument whenever the university made an employment offer to somebody who was coming from, say, uh, another housing market where housing costs less, which is probably most places in the United States at this point. Uh, you make someone an offer, um, it's a pretty good salary, but if they're spending way too much of it on housing, we're not going to be able to build the university. And uh, I would even go so far as to claim, and I think there are people who would back me up, University Hills as a recruiting resource is the single most powerful thing that can explain the rise of UC Irvine to the upper ranks of, of public research universities. And the retention part. That's that's performing almost as well as the recruitment. Uh, retention, we, yes. Recruitment and retention. Should always use those two together. Well, it's, it's, it's true because I know people that might have been, they'd be at Stanford right now, but Stanford could never offer a housing allowance that would be comparable to the kind that would allow them to, to maintain standard living that they have beca- for uh, care of the Aisha housing you, stock. You know, they're, they're, they're actually trying. Interesting that you should mention Stanford. Uh, we have a, a group of peer uh, academic workforce housing organizations. Stanford is one of them. They're an important campus to compare to because they have lots of land, as we do. They have lots of money, probably more than we do. They have very, very high housing costs. Uh, another campus that we compare ourselves to is, is UC Davis, lots of land, public research university. Uh, the University of British Columbia, lots of land, a very prominent public research university. Uh, and so this is a uh, an issue, the housing costs for faculty who uh, are you know, underpaid compared to some of the regular workforce uh, or compared to the, the cost of housing within their local market. It's, a, it's an issue that many of us face. So as a scholar in, in residence serving on the Aisha board, the Irvine Campus Housing Board, you took up this research to, to look at various uh, demo- demographic trends and patterns and all this. Was this an initiative of the the board itself, or was this something you've been always uh, sort of wanting to take a closer look at? Well, you know, I, I teach in a program that trains professionals in ur- urban and regional planning, so my serving as scholar in residence at the Irvine Campus Housing Authority was sort of my, my practice gig. It helps me keep up my practice chops so right that I can, I can teach students uh, the organization, AICHA itself, uh, has always had uh, uh, some strategic long-range planning going on, and, and it's been my uh, particular expertise in, in planning that I could contribute to their effort. And so uh, over the course of a couple quarters of uh, sabbatical, I've been able to help with their 
uh, strategic planning. And that's where this study that we're talking about today came up. So there's a couple of metrics I'd like to have you unpackage for us. That what is successful and what, what do you mean by smart? So first let's talk about what makes this successful, this okay. community. How do we know that this is a successful community? Uh, we have compared ourselves and we regularly communicate with all of our peer programs in North America, and there are dozens and dozens of them. I've, I've mentioned a couple of right. them. Uh, University of California, Irvine, has the largest number, absolute number, and proportion of faculty who are homeowners. Um, there are other programs, for example, University of British Columbia, who have lots and lots and lots more <laughs> units than, than we do. Uh, we have approximately 1,200, 1,300 units, depending how you want to count the ones under construction. Um, they have 6,000 units and going towards 11,000. But nearly all of those are rental units. And after about three years, their faculty, who have accepted uh, offers that had housing in them, saying, you know, we'd like to buy a place. And you know what? They can't, or at least they can't yet. Uh, we've been successful in making homeowners of nearly every one of our faculty member who has that aspiration in a very high-cost housing market. And so that's, that's our success. I, I think something that came as a um, uh, desirable side effect is, is that people actually like living there not just because of the cost. They like the community. They well, like their neighbors. They like the amenities. They, they like being able to, to walk to work. Um, these are our privileges that have uh, developed in tandem with, but in some sense are secondary to, to making the housing affordable. And I think I see that measurement of success in how many faculty relocate here after, I don't know where they've been living, some of them uh, prior, but so many at all, in all levels of administration, full professors and associate uh, all kinds of professors that are willing to move here because of how this this seems to be performing and to the point where I think some of them like I could think of a particular dean who's like a, in a fishbowl where he lives at a corner lot there and they're willing to it must be so successful they're willing to be sort of uh, so so visible to so many neighbors and colleagues and uh, subordinates. Well, let, let me let me say something a little bit about that to get Please into do. your question about the smart metrics. Okay. So, you know, when, when all of us go home, all of us as faculty members, we cross the street from main campus to University Hills. We, we actually lose our superpowers. You know, some of us can time travel. We can, we can transport people into the minds of, of 18th century, uh, you know, revolutionary France, for example. Uh, uh, others of us, you know, yeah. uh, you know, can have special powers with uh, um, uh, combustion or flames. Others can, can build, if not leap over skyscrapers and so on and so forth. Um, we've got, all got those special powers, but... Uh, uh, you know, to take a little personal page, I used to live next door to a, a Nobel Prize winner. You know, when you're next door neighbors with somebody, you, you don't necessarily go over there. And I didn't feel like I had to talk physics. And, you know, first thing he said to me is, is you know, um, when you when I moved there, he said, you know, uh, when you put out your garbage can, you put yours on that side of the line. And I'm going to put mine on he this didn't. side of the line. Oh, wow. And and, you know, the, the, the point simply being that that we're regular folks when we live in University Hills. My guess is that the dean is a regular folk when he or she is there, and I know they're both female and male deans who are living in University Hills. So um, all of the ones that I'm aware of have families, and uh, it's a place where some people by dint of their personality or or they they forget that they're not on main campus and they think that they're walking down the street everyone should know that they have some fancy credentials but in fact everybody's got those fancy credentials so it it really makes no difference um and so the complaints that we get are the same ones you'd hear in other neighborhoods um the comments we get about neighbors good and bad same as any other neighborhood are, are we smarter, which is the question that you were asking about earlier? Um, 
we might be if you used something like PhDs per capita. Right. But and and uh, I have a little illustration in my study where I, I take everybody on my block, and I've actually got a picture of almost everybody standing in front of my neighbor's garage door because we had a block party once. Um, there were 27... Uh, uh, 20 adults, seven kids. Uh, there were about three 20 somethings that were missing because they were off, you know, working or at college. Uh, but of those 30 or so people, 11 had either a PhD or an MD. Now, that's a pretty, pretty high, impressive ratio. But, you know, when everybody's got all these credentials, it's like nobody has them. And, and it comes back down to, well, you know, so what are you doing about the gophers in your, your lawn? Oh, well, I've noticed, we'll, well, I have a listserv item I was going to bring up later, the water cooler that keeps uh, things going amazingly. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI demographer and senior lecturer Ken Chu on Ask a Leader, and we're talking about the nearby completely special and one-company housing project that is University Hills. So l I would like to get into financing because it's a, it's a, a, a many-pronged uh, sort of concern uh, that actually I just heard on Marketplace last week, they were talking about Aspen's affordable housing program, which mimicked a little bit of what's going on here with the, the, the locked in lower housing price also means that if anybody wants to uh, improve anything, there's no guarantee the improvement is going to, they're going to get a return on investing in that improvement of their property. They know, they know now that, uh, or not everybody knows, but you will now after I say it, is that in order to appreciate your investment in improving that property, it needs to be a part of your purchase price. It's uh, anything you do later on. It's uh, in the Aisha governance. This is it is not a straightforward kind of valuation process, and we're all dealing with that. So there's a disincentive, like what the marketplace was exploring with this Aspen Affordable Housing Project, a disincentive for maintenance and upgrading. Uh, you know, Claudia, this is actually the same as any other housing market where the prices are constantly rising. We're in the situation in University Hills where, you know, somebody can have a lot of deferred maintenance. They're, they're going to let something or another go. They're not going to paint. They're not going to patch things properly. And there's, you know, our usual share of, of people who are too busy or don't have enough money. They know that they can let it go, and there's still going to be a buyer waiting right there. Even though it's a fixer-upper, that buyer is going to put that money right down no matter what. But, you know, that's true of any housing market where housing is really, really desirable. If you go to San Francisco and you got a, a, a fixer-upper in San Francisco or you got one in Silicon Valley or you got one in, uh, in Seattle or, or Vancouver, you know that somebody is going to buy it even if it's a fixer-upper. And so we're no different from, from outside uh, housing markets in that sense. Well, but the, the market rate houses, though, that, that, that's a much more highly valued kind of purchase price going in there versus what... Uh, the there is a market for all of the University Hills housing, but there is an Aisha set price. It's the marketplace isn't acknowledging those improvements, or the, so th that's where the disincentive kicks in here. So it doesn't matter because it's it's a capped a cap price. It's restricted, or they call limited equity here at University Hills. Well, well, there's two sides of it. Y yes, um, that is something we do struggle with. Although, again, as I say, that's a characteristic of all housing markets where prices are going up. But the thing is, we have to keep the housing affordable to people who are that's following the point. us and, right, right, and, right. And, and coming in. And, and that's sort of the trade-off that we have to make. So I noticed with your presentation, and I'll put a link up on the podcast summary uh, so everybody can hear your talk that you gave last, I think it was in early May. In May, yes. And so you give everybody a chance for you to talk about the boom echo going on and that kind of thing. But I want to talk about the retirement element that a lot of people were concerned that because there is a disincentive, it's difficult to move away from this affordable housing. You can't go off and you can't leave University Hills and go into a market rate union. You can't afford that. So people have every uh, ration, um, 
rationale to stay here and that means retirement and that was a concern and you were able to investigate that as demographer is what's actually happening with the graying of university hills so let me let me give you the the punchline immediately so far it doesn't look like a problem and and uh as best as we can tell looking 10 to 15 years in the future, you know, with all sorts of fancy demographic models, uh, looking at what is happening to the stock of our housing, looking at our recruitment, retention, retirement uh, issues, and so on and so forth. It actually doesn't seem to be a problem. Not not now. I Actually, what I wanted to find out from you, Kentu, is when you did looked under the hood here with all of the the details because and as you mentioned the Aisha doesn't collect all the data there's only there's only certain kinds of data points that are collected but was there anything in your research that surprised you was there anything that surprised me you know I guess because I I look at this all the time and have been doing it for for years it and wasn't so it. much a surprise to me but I I think what usually surprises maybe your listeners okay. and, and people who are not uh, familiar with with the phenomenon is w- we like to think of ourselves as as really really special in all sorts of ways and we sort of hope that something will prove that we really are the smartest neighborhood and then 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 they find out you know actually we're kind of quite ordinary we we look like other neighborhoods if you took away our PhDs we look like other neighborhoods in Irvine our houses look like other neighborhoods in Irvine actually this is by design okay well, there is a subculture, and that time does not allow me to let you open up or speculate on what so many PhDs, MDs, LDs, and uh, uh, all that means translates in a sort of a subcultural way of thinking. But we'll we'll leave that for another time. But I I need to wind down, and I just want to. There is a listserv that services the neighborhood, as I would call, like a giant water cooler, and I couldn't believe last night. Just, just in time for me to incorporate into the radio show was this request that was posted, not to disappoint, just in time, a request for breast milk that someone has pumped and be, would be willing to donate to a new mama neighbor in need. The younger baby, the better, but any way, age will do. Obviously, drug-free, alcohol-free, etc. That was the in the listserv. Uh, any volume is welcome, uh, she said, of course. So I think that that was like the just in time to uh, include for today. Well, Kentu, I, I have more questions. We may have to figure out some sort of little holiday special. We can talk, wind it down and uh, do a additional reflection on what's going on in University Hills and talk a little bit more about some of the opaque financial aspects and enforcement of the charter and that kind of a thing. So, I, But I do want to thank you for coming down to the station and joining us to talk about the smartest neighborhood. Thanks for letting me be with your listeners. Thank you very much. We got to close with Fred Rogers, Garden of Your Mind mix. So that was my wrap. Next week, we've got a full roster. Carl Meritz and Roger Gloss have some local climate change activism and an opportunity for listeners to join at the end of the week to attend a workshop that runs with the template already operating in San Diego. Dr. Terry Welsh, then uh, the Banning Ranch Conservancy president, will return to signal what's ahead on the following day with the California Coastal Commission's agenda at its Newport Beach meeting, the Banning Ranch proposal. Then we'll take up what I promised you earlier, the latest brain plasticity research. UCI's Jackie Al will talk about his findings. All that for you. Thanks for listening. Talk with you next week. So many people who can help us learn. And so many people who can help us learn. Did you ever grow anything in the garden of your mind? In the garden of your mind. You can grow ideas in the garden of your mind.